This is a Federal News Network podcast. Seeking comments from those affected, it's a foundation stone of U.S. federal rulemaking. And regulated parties, companies, industries, associations, they're never shy about commenting. But what about those whom the rules are supposed to benefit? My next guest says the evidence shows that group is often silent, and she's got a prescription for widening participation in rulemaking. She's a professor at the New York University and former administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Sally Katzen. Ms. Katzen, great to have you on. Thank you. Nice to be here, Tom. So tell us about your findings with respect to who actually does the commenting, because right now agencies are dealing with the fact that they sometimes get millions of identical comments, but they don't often come from that wide a variety of sources. Well, there are two different trends that have occurred in the last several decades. When notice and comment rulemaking was initiated, it was called informal rulemaking, and it was fairly informal. The agencies would give notice, which makes sense because you want people to know what the government is trying to do. And they would give comments, which makes sense because sometimes the people on the ground have a lot to contribute to the process. Over the years, I'm thinking 70s, 80s, 90s, courts began to layer on requirements that meant that the agencies not only said what they were thinking about doing, but why? And based on what data and what findings they had, et cetera. And the notices became much longer, more involved. And the consequence was that the comments became longer and more involved. And it took substantially more resources and time and commitment. And this is something that the regulated entities who were going to be primarily bearing the cost of these regulations were willing to supply. But the intended beneficiaries, what I call the regulatory beneficiaries, did not have either the resources or the interest necessarily or the ability to be able to contribute. So we've seen over the last couple of decades, as I was starting to say, a substantial increase in a one-sidedness to the comment process where the regulated entities jump right in and provide all sorts of information. And the regulatory beneficiaries are not at the table and are not heard. And could another factor be that sometimes these rules are highly technical and the benefits are only maybe abstract to the recipients? For example, I'm just making this one up but a regulation proposed to reduce phosgene parts per billion from 15 to 13. Well, the industry knows what that'll cost, what kind of equipment they'll need to do, et cetera, et cetera. If I'm out there breathing the air, I can't really tell you what the difference between 15 parts per billion or 13 parts per billion of phosgene might do for me. Absolutely. As we have become a much more techno-centric government regulator, We are entering into all sorts of areas that the man on the street or the woman on the street is either oblivious to or unable to comment on in a meaningful way. We are speaking with Sally Katzen. She teaches law at New York University, and she's former administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And notwithstanding that rules received are not to be considered a plebiscite or a vote, on whether a rule gets implemented, and that's something I think regulators usually understand but maybe don't always. 
should there be more comments then from those that would be the beneficiaries of the regulation? And how could that happen? I think that would be a very good development because the beneficiaries are the ones who are most at stake in this thing. I can remember when the Department of Transportation thought that it would be a very clever way of inducing people to wear seatbelts is to have an interlock system. You couldn't turn on the engine if your seatbelts weren't buckled. People didn't like that. And they rebelled and they took them to car shops and whatever and had they disconnected. Then they reached out to Congress and said, what are you doing? And Congress reached out to the Department of Transportation and said, stop it. So there was a proposal which was intended to benefit drivers that the drivers didn't want and weren't going to accept. I can think of other instances. More recently, we've got water filtration issues. I'm thinking of the Flint, Michigan type of situation where the agency may want to say, let's redo the pipes up to the house. And householders will then handle the pipes within the house. And that makes sense from the practical standpoint of where your jurisdiction lies. It doesn't make sense to the community. In a lot of these areas where there is lead in pipes, the homes are rented. And it may be that the owner has no interest in spending all that additional money. And the rentee doesn't have the resources. These are in low income areas. So if you have a program that stops at the end of the property line, it may not ever achieve its objective. So to have the input of those who are supposedly going to be benefited by this is really important. And one of the purposes of the comment is to educate the agency, and they can get education from all sides. Well, as a practical matter, again, I mean, the regulated entities, they have sometimes the big industries or the associations have staff that do nothing but monitor the Federal Register to know where these rules are posted. The average person, if they can get to the Federal Register, finds this incomprehensible mass of material, millions of pages accumulated over the years, and has no way of getting at it. So is there some kind of a technical solution or a way to get the people that we would like to have more comments from aware of the issue in the first place and also how to comment? I think that's a good question, although I don't want you to write off all input from the beneficiary side because there are a number of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, that are really quite good and have scientific economic staff who can put together compelling comments and submit them for the record. But by and large, you are right that the, as I say, the person who's really going to be affected is not reading the Federal Register. If they were, they'd be crazy. Uh, They'd be, um, they have better things to do with their lives. And yes, there is a way of doing it. Now, this is something that I think agencies have expertise in rather than some centralized entity like OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, because each agency knows its stakeholders. Each agency best understands the complexities and the makeup of the people that they're trying to help. 
And so rather than a one size fits all, I think individual agencies should be empowered, although educated, to reach out. And they might do it in different ways. I mean, you're talking about in community listening sessions, even before you draft the notice, talk to the people, or more importantly, listen to the people that you're trying to help. I think that would be one way of doing it. There was a time when we actually had hearings in which we would run around the country and have listening sessions as people could speak to the decision makers. That's by and large disappeared. And maybe it's time to revive it and to work with local organizers who are raising some of these issues and say, meet with us, talk to us, we will listen. And to do that even before the notice goes out so that you're better equipped to not miss the mark. All right. And before we let you go, just any other thoughts you have on rulemaking reform? There was a gambit of a couple of years ago to try to somehow bring more artificial intelligence or technology into the agency's ability to simply understand what they're getting in terms of mass incoming comments and, you know, 10 million copies of the same comment coming in and that kind of thing. Process itself basically sound? I think the process is essentially sound. With the exception of AI and how to deal with an influx of numerous comments, which may or may not be legitimate, may or may not have been generated by the people who say they're signing their names, A lot of the reg reform ideas have been looking backwards rather than forwards. A lot of the reform ideas have been to further encrust the regulatory process with additional procedures to fix what happened before. And I think it's important in reg reform to look ahead. And AI is one area where it would be fruitful to do so. But building on the basic construct, which I think is basically sound, rather than trying to redo the whole thing. Sally Katzen teaches law at New York University and is a former administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom, for inviting me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. What will it take to conserve 10 billion acres of ocean, 1.6 billion acres of land, and over 600,000 miles of river? What will it take to protect and restore natural habitats in over 70 countries around the world? And in all 50 states here at home. What will it take? You. Together, we will make it happen. It's in our nature. See how your gift can help at nature.org. The Nature Conservancy. Protecting nature, preserving life. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.